Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Angelo Sirbas, an expert orbital and ophthalmic facial plastic surgeon. He specializes in aesthetic oculofacial surgery and minimally invasive eye rejuvenation. His work focuses on blepharoplasty or eyelid surgery, brow lifts and surgery of the aging face. He's received international recognition for his innovative surgical techniques and is sought after by patients from around the world for help in correcting some of the most challenging and complicated cases. Welcome back, Dr. Sirbus. Thanks for Thank joining you. us once again. We ran out of time on the last uh, episode to yeah, get no, to lower bleps. Back. Thank so we you. thought we'd uh, we'd cover that now. So thank you. So lower blepharoplasty surgery. Yes. So we, last time we spoke about uppers. So we can did. you just explain to us, obviously upper and lower, but just in terms yeah. of the differences between the procedures and I guess patient selection and how the, how the process works and so on? It's a good question because there's some uh, very significant and large differences between the two types of surgery. The first one being that uh, operating on the lower eyelid is really technically difficult. Yeah. And it's an area that is fraught with danger and the downsides can be terrible. The main reason that we operate on the lower eyelid is that people will have some puffiness or some looseness of the skin or they'll feel that they look tired. That's a classic complaint as is the fact that some people complain about dark circles or there are different anatomic and functional causes of all these problems. And one of the common mistakes that people make is when they operate on the lower eyelid, they do the same operation for everyone. Yeah. And that's the wrong way to think about things. The first thing that you have to think about when somebody comes for lower eyelid surgery is what complaint they have and whether in fact they actually need surgery. Yeah. So that's the first thing that I discuss with patients. And depending on the complaint that they have, let's take, for instance, the common complaint of dark circles around the eyes. Now, there are some patients where that's an anatomical and ethnic variation. So patients that have a deep set eye, many Mediterranean patients, many patients from North Africa or the Middle East, Syria, I have many patients from Syria and all that, the area of Persia, Iran, Iraq. Many of those patients ethnically have a very deep set eye. Yeah. They have minimal fat in the eyelid. And what they complain about is dark circles around the eye. And that's related to the anatomy of the facial bones and the position of the eye. Yeah. Those patients may not need surgery on many occasions. 
Can I pick you up on the term dark circle? Because yes. you know, our patients will band it around. They will. And it can mean a hollow. It can mean an, an eye bag, like a puffy bag. And Correct. it can mean pigmentation. Correct. Depending on who you're talking to. Exactly Com- right. And I think this is half the problem. <laughs> That's, well, that, it is half the problem. The, the lower eyelid surgery is very difficult to do because you need to have a very accurate diagnosis. Yes. And you need to have a procedure very uniquely targeted to that patient. Yeah. So let's take dark circles. So patients will come in and say, often they'll say, I look tired. Some of them will say, I'll have people tell me I've got dark circles and I, you know, I don't feel tired and I hate it. Yeah. The first thing is to try and work out what they mean yeah. or, or what's causing the dark circle. And you're right. You know, what are the causes of the dark circle or the tear trough deformity or the orbitomalar deformity. Part of the problem is the nomenclature when you look at the literature. So often the same thing is called by various names, but let's call it dark circles to keep it simple. So a dark circle may be due to some pigmentation under the skin. A dark circle might be due to a shadow that's thrown by a loose eyelid that's caused, that has some puffiness above the circle. Yeah. Or it may be due to some swelling or changes below the eyelid in the cheek area. When you've made that diagnosis, then it's important to work out how you're going to treat it. People that have puffiness, for instance, they've got some some of the fat that was initially well contained by the tight structures of the lower eyelid when they were young. When that structure loosens, that fat tends to bulge forward. Yes, Now, traditionally, what people have done is they've just removed that fat. Mm. But has this patient actually got more fat as they've gotten older in the orbit? No, they haven't. It's just moved. It's just moved and it's loose. So what I do is I preserve all the fat in the lower eyelid and I reposition it into the correct position. Yeah. So that's one treatment for that puffiness of the fat. The second patient that you might see is they may have no puffy fat, but they still have a dark circle. And that may be due to the thinness of the skin over the cheekbone and in the tear trough area, which is the area where the eyelid meets the nose, basically. Now that tissue is very thin and it's got some blood vessels that cause that dark circle. In my experience, it's better to treat that area non-invasively, depending on the age of the patient. By non-invasively, what are you going to do? We can either try and fill that area to give it a little bit more thickness, and you can use some fillers for that, or you can try and thicken the skin in that area to improve the quality of the skin to hide some of the vascularity underneath. Yeah, Both of those things are more useful, I think, and that's what I tell patients, usually younger patients will present with that problem. And I'll see younger patients and they'll say to me, look, I want to have a lower lip blepharoplasty. And I'll say, listen, you don't really need a lower lip blepharoplasty. What you need is some filler or some skin treatment, and that will help the problem that you've got. Yeah, Won't get rid of it completely because we're not going to change the position of your orbit and we're not going to move your maxillary bones Although both of those things are possible, I don't suggest that to the patient. Yeah. So the patient with dark circles, no orbital fat, no prolapse of the fat, no puffiness, they do very well with non-invasive treatments. Yeah. Now, a lot of our listeners are injectors. And, Correct. You know, the tear trough is notoriously done... It's very difficult. ...poorly, or even if it's done really well, 
months or years down the line, people complain of issues like Correct. puffiness. Or Correct. It's a very difficult area. And the reason it's difficult is the population group that we have here in Australia. Often, many of the studies that have been done in fillers are often in Northern European patients. And even the blonde patients, they're all from Scandinavia. <laughs> so they've got nice, thick skin, minimal sun damage. Yes. So... The skin in the tear trough is very, very thin. Yeah. And it's difficult to put the filler in the correct position and not cause problems. Yeah. And and often less is more. Yes. So a small injection in that area can make a big difference by thickening that area, changing the way the shadow falls. But it's a difficult area to inject. Yeah. And people tend, like you said, Jake, to put too much. Do you agree that um, using a cannula versus a needle is safer? It's a good question. There's no... Because I even get clients coming to me asking that question now. Yeah, they're they're good, very well a, researched. You've got clients it's, asking you for a, a cannula version. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah. They do. Look, there's no <clears throat> randomised study evidence that one is safer than the other. And I know that uh, I'm coming back uh, next week to talk about some of the issues of yeah. filler safety, especially around the eye. In many of those studies that I've looked at, the there's an equal number of complications from needles and from cannulas. Okay. I tend to use a cannula when I'm injecting in the tear trough and I like the control that that gives me yeah. and the ability to position the filler in the exact area that I want. But I don't think there's enough evidence to tell an experienced injector that uses a needle, you should stop doing that. Yeah. It's almost like it makes sense that a blunt object would be safer, but in the right hands, the right tool might be correct. Useful yeah, for it sounds person. theoretically more useful in terms that you know a cannula, let's say above twenty-five gauge, and twenty-five gauge is what we mean by that is just the diameter and the thickness of the cannula. Yeah. So, not a super fine one would be safer, but we're still waiting for. Good evidence that that's the case. Yeah, there, w there was a paper, and I think you've just alluded to it, that anything smaller than a 25 is just as likely as a needle to to, to pierce the, the blood vessels and yeah. accidentally inject the filler in there. Yeah, that's we'll a come suggestion. On to that. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, filling that area, yes. would you? I know there's a lot of um, uh, fat grafting is becoming a lot more of a popular procedure again. It is. Um, would yeah. you ever use a fat graft in that area, or only only dermal fillers? It, it's a good question. I, I wouldn't use a fat graft in that area. Yeah. The reason I guess that I wouldn't is I see all the populate the problems rather yeah. from fat grafting. The, in general, or just with the eye? With the eye. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah people will have uh, autologous fat injected in that area. The skin is super thin. If you have a problem, or it goes lumpy or forms a granuloma or is inflamed, you've got Can't no hide. you've got yeah. no other second position to come to. Whereas if you're using a dissolvable filler, whatever brand or product that is, at least you've got some way of fixing the problem. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, the patient doesn't like it, it's lumpy, you can get rid of it. Yeah. So in the patients that have the dark circles and are young, I might say that non-invasive methods are useful. Yeah. I have some patients, when they're a little bit older, they have dark circles, they don't have much fat. Lower lip blepharoplasty is still useful for them. So what do I mean by lower lip blepharoplasty? The way I do it is I always do it from the inside of the eyelid, so mm -hmm. transconjunctivally. Mm. 
So I make an incision and I reposition. I don't remove any of the fat. So I reposition all the fat internally in the area of the tear trough. So it acts as your own filler and helps smooth that contour. It doesn't get rid of it completely, but it helps smooth it. And operating from the inside of the eyelid means that you can avoid making an incision in the skin of the lower eyelid. Yes. It's uncommon for anybody less than about 45 to 50 years of age to require skin of the lower eyelid to be removed. Yes. But I commonly see problems and the problems are really common when people do a lower lip blepharoplasty through a transcutaneous approach. Mm. So they make an incision under the eyelashes on the front of the eyelid and take skin away. Now, I do that in older patients. You know, if a patient's over 75, then I may use a skin incision. But really, in anyone less than that, most of the surgery can be accomplished internally. Is that because the skin has become so inelastic that at some point you have to bite the bullet and remove that? Exactly, exactly. You can't rejuvenate the skin. So what we're doing is trying to mask the elasticity by removing a small part of the skin. And what usually I do is I remove a small part of the skin and then I tighten the muscle underneath the skin okay. to try and reposition it. Not not cut the muscle because obviously that muscle is really important. Why is it important? It's important in blinking. Yes. So the orbicularis muscle in the lower eyelid is critical for maintaining the position of the lower eyelid Yeah. and also for blinking. And what can happen is if you make an incision from the front of the eyelid and it starts to bleed a little bit or ooze, what people tend to do is cauterize that area. Hmm. And what you're doing is you're actually killing those muscle fibers. So if you can get away from damaging that muscle by operating internally and making an incision inside the eyelid, you're far less likely to have those problems. Yeah, that sounds very sensible. In terms of the recovery time, is it similar to the upper? No, it's a little bit longer. The reason it's a little bit longer is you have a little bit more swelling. Yeah. So the repositioning of the fat, which not all patients require, but most patients require, and it gives a a better aesthetic effect, uh, takes a little bit longer to settle because the fat's in a different position. So usually I will tell patients a couple of weeks rather than seven to 10 days. So most of the fundamental things in lower eyelid surgery, as well as upper eyelid surgery, what I try and tell the patient is that we're going to keep all the volume that you have there. We're going to put it back in the right spot. We're going to reupholster the eyelid. We're not going to remove fat. We're not going to cut tissue away. We're not going to cut skin or we're not going to cut muscle. Now, why do people do that? The reason they do that is it looks pretty good for a year or two, but it ages very badly. Mm. If you look at an older patient, you look at somebody who's 80 years old, what do you see? You see a hollow eyelid with no fat and a very sunken eye. You don't want to hasten that by taking fat away when somebody's 40 years old. Yeah. I mean, it's likely that they'll need that aesthetic outcome or that aesthetic improvement for the next 60 years. So all the tissue that you can preserve is something that can help them later on with further procedures. Because it's unlikely somebody is having a blepharoplasty or an aesthetic procedure at 40 years of age, it's uh, it's 
not likely that this is going to be their final procedure, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't really say to them, well, look, after this eyelid surgery, after this facelift, you're never going to need anything else done because people continue to age. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do is we try to slow that process down and get them back to a more youthful, full, lower eyelid look that they may have had, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Why is pigmentation almost selective for the tear trough? It just seems to sit there. It does. It's, it, it's a good question. The short answer is that nobody really knows, but what we think happens is that there's a ligament that separates the lower eyelid from the cheek. Mm. And that ligament goes from the skin to the covering of the bone, which is called the periosteum. Yeah. And under the effect of gravity, a lot of the, f the blood vessels in that area are very thin and fragile, and they're prone to sun damage, especially if you're outdoors a lot. So what happens is some of the decomposing blood vessels, the hemosiderin, the iron pigment, tend to settle. Yeah. And they'll settle just in front of that little ligament. As you can see, sometimes somebody that's had a black eye or has had some facial trauma, you can often see the bruising on the outer side of the face will track all the way down to the neck. Yes. Whereas the bruising around the eyes is completely held in, is contained by those ligaments. Those ligaments are really important in the surgery because to improve the tear trough surgically, you need to internally release those ligaments when you're repositioning the fat. Yeah. They're also really important for injectors <clears throat> because you need to know I'm above the ligament, I'm below the ligament. And as long as you know where you are, you can get the aesthetic result that you're looking for. Mm. Now, would you commonly or uh, as a standard process do upper and lower together if someone needs both or would you space them out? It's a good question. Probably 25% of my patients would have upper and lower lip blepharoplasty at the same time. Usually the average age group for the patients that have that is probably around 47 to 53 in females and a little bit older in males, mm. probably mid-50s in males. For upper eyelid blepharoplasty, the average age of the patients is around 40. And in those patients, often that extra looseness in the upper eyelid is not replicated or evidenced in the lower eyelid. So I often would just do the upper eyelid in those patients. Yeah. Now, sometimes people will say to me, the reason I'm here is this. I would very rarely make other suggestions apart from the, you know, what the patient wants. So I'm very focused on what the patient's problem is or what they perceive to be the problem. Yeah. One of the things that I like to ask the patient in the first consultation is, what do you think the problem is? Sometimes they'll say to me, well, look, they sent me to you because uh, they said I needed this, this, and this, but I don't really think I need that. Yeah. Now that's the, you know, that's a really important thing to pick up in your assessment because the patient may not be there for the reasons that you think they are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Something that we didn't cover in the last episode, but we should probably cover it off now, is just to give people a, an idea about the things that could potentially go wrong. Yes. Um, we try and sort of always balance the good with the bad. Yeah, no, no, I, the bad. I, think, I think that's So really maybe we important. can cover complications for both if that's yeah. okay. So complications for eyelid surgery can be very significant and life-changing. And I have a large number of patients that come to me to try and fix problems that they've got. In the upper and lower eyelid, 
the biggest complication that I see is people take too much tissue. Mm. And the worst of that is they take too much skin. And what happens if you haven't got enough skin in the upper and lower eyelid is you can't close your eyes. So these patients have constant irritation, constant dryness, and in the worst case scenario can get ulceration of the cornea and infections. More commonly, however, is that they have a constant irritation and dryness. And when they sleep, they can't close their eyes, and that's called lagophthalmus. Got And it's a terrible complication that changes people's lives for the worse. They can't work properly. At every point of their life, they have an uncomfortable feeling in their eyes. You can imagine sometimes if you've gotten a piece of grit yeah. or something yeah. in your eye, how annoying that it's is, the right? Worst, yeah. Imagine having that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and seeing people that say, well, we can't help you, we can't help you, we can't help you. So I see a lot of those patients, and it's a very difficult situation to come back from, and the surgery is quite complex. It's related to trying to augment the skin and get them to close their eyes. So that's the worst complication, right? Mm. Well, excluding, obviously, super rare things like infections or bleeding or the most catastrophic complication obviously is blindness yeah so the risk of those catastrophic complications for eyelid surgery is very very low it's not as low as non-invasive treatment obviously but thankfully it's very low so the complications of infection and bleeding are very uncommon around the eye probably less than one percent or less than one in a thousand The complications that most people have are related, as I said, to too much tissue being taken and them not being able to close their eyes. In the lower eyelid, that's manifested as retraction of the lower eyelid and droopiness. And it's one of the commonest things that you may see out in the community. Even if a patient can close their eyes, in lower eyelid surgery, often too much tissue is taken again, especially if you make the incision in the skin, and the patient's eyelid looks abnormal. Is that an ectropion? It is. It's an ectropion. It's a medical term. Yeah. So it's a droopy eyelid that's been pulled down. More common than that is it's not quite pulled down, but it looks a little bit abnormal. Yeah. And why does it look abnormal? The reason it looks abnormal is because it's tight and it's rounded like a circle. And the human eye really picks that up because it's the eyelid and the palpable aperture is not round. It's more of an almond shape. Obviously, there are ethnic variations, but it's more of an almond shape. And any abnormality in the contour of the eyelids, even if the height's okay, even if the contour is a little bit abnormal, people pick it up straight away. Yeah. So they're the commonest problems I see. So the biggest risk that people have with eyelid surgery is that there's too much tissue that's been taken and some of the structures that are involved in the function of the eye are damaged. The most common structures damaged are related to the blinking of the eyelid. So the orbicularis muscle, which closes the eye in the upper and lower eyelid is damaged. And sometimes the levator muscle, which involves opening the eye and positioning it in the right spot can also be damaged. So they're the commonest things that I see. Uncommon things are related to damage to the muscles that move the eye. You know, what's the risk of double vision for this surgery? I mean, that can happen and I have seen it. And the risk of that is really small, 
But if you don't know the anatomy well and where you're operating, you can actually damage one of the muscles that moves the eye. Mm. And that, again, is a serious problem. Yeah. How important is, um, I guess, the, when you're doing a procedure on someone, it's a partnership, right? So you're doing your half and then the patient is responsible for certain things as well in terms of making sure they follow the post-operative instructions. It's a good question. Um, and I think that sometimes... Um, potential patients may not understand how important it is to follow post-op instructions and to that they're responsible for almost, what, 50% of the outcome of that procedure is what they do when they leave your operating theatre or your rooms. It's a really good point. We have a system where I reinforce a lot of the post-operative instructions and I work under the mindset that people are not going to really listen Mm. to what I tell them. So we continually reinforce it. So we'll ring the patients that evening, the next day, the next few days, and go over the things again and again. So much so that some of the patients will say to me, look, I know you've told me this, I'm listening to what you're saying, but I think it's better to err on that side than assuming that the patient, you know, with the post-operative instruction sheet is going to use the icing. It's going to take the antibiotics is going to one of the things that's really important is that the patient knows when to call yeah you know and i tell the patients i said listen if you think that something is not quite right you should call me all the time yeah don't think that you're bothering me i would much prefer to answer a question where there's no problem than for you to wait a week and we see you in the clinic at your first post-operative appointment and there to be a problem. So I'm always available for my patients. So I always give them my mobile number so that they can contact me directly. So they don't have to go through the girls or an intermediary or any other member of the surgical team. If they think there's a problem, they just call me directly. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking to a lot of surgeons about this uh, consultation and post-care and instructions, and I think there's a, a lot of um, people that are looking toward a more standardised, like maybe videoing or having something so it's the same thing all the time. People can go and watch it. You know that the same message is being delivered because sometimes when people are like drowsy or they're excited about a procedure, they're not really listening or there's other things going on. So I think that there is going to be definitely a move towards that standardised sort of process for people to sort of uh, follow. It is. I think it's a good point. We try to standardise it by going through all the instructions preoperatively. And then you're right, when often people wake up from twilight anaesthesia, when you go through the instructions with them, they're going to be a little bit drowsy. So we always have uh, the carer that we go over it again, like everybody else. And then we do that the next day as well. And obviously we have written instructions and then we call them, but it's sometimes it is difficult. And sometimes the problems that can happen or often it's not problems. Often it's a slowness of the healing process that can be frustrating for the patient as well as the surgeon. If the things aren't done, you know, you might say to the patient, well, you know, the average downtime for this procedure is seven to 10 days. And if the patient is longer than that, they're often upset. Yes. And it's, it's no good going back to them and saying, well, you didn't do all the right things. And we have to have mechanisms in place to guide that behavior and assume that patients are only going to really do half of what you tell them, which is what the studies show. If you say to somebody, well, you need to, use these ice compression goggles four hours a day 
they might do two hours, right? Yeah. I mean, you mm -hmm. see that all the time for for various medical yeah, absolutely. Techniques. Yeah. Now, sorry, as you were talking, I was desperately typing some questions that just popped into my head. It's yes. It's probably more related to injectables around the eye. But yes. Crepey under eye skin is something that I probably talk about. Well, I get asked about at least twice a day. Correct. And I put my hands up and I say to people, "Look, there isn't a magic solution that I, think that's I have in my toolkit." But what about someone like yourself? Yeah, I think that's very true. That's a very difficult area. So what we're talking about here is patients who have perhaps a hyperdynamic orbicularis, where you know their natural uh, response to most social situations is smiling. Mm. And in those hyperdynamic situations, if you combine that with the thinness of the skin, perhaps in a fair-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde patient, yeah. that causes loss of the connections between the skin and the muscle. So it causes this crepiness. Now, they may not have any fat prolapse. They may not have any looseness of the eyelid. So how do you improve the skin quality in that area? Mm. So the first thing I do is I look at non-invasive treatments. And I think that some of the treatments for improving the quality of the skin, such as vitamin A or retin-A or some of the chemical agents are useful. Okay. Some of the agents to you to thicken that area, like super fine hyaluronic acid gel fillers can help. Yes. Superficial treatment with energy delivery devices can also be useful if it's very gentle. Yeah. And then the last thing I offer is a tightening of the muscle underneath the skin and also a removal of a small part of that crepey skin. It's important to tell the patient the level of improvement that we can get. And with that problem, the level of improvement is 50 to 75%. Oh, that's okay, significant. That's, yeah. that's pretty good. but It is good, but it's not as good as somebody that comes to me that may have some fat prolapse where you can reposition that fat and do some, an anatomic volumizing reconstruction yeah. that gives predictable larger improvement. So one of the difficulties is with patients, as you know, is every patient's different. And they'll say, my patients might say, well, my friend had a lower lip blepharoplasty. She had some bags under her eyes and she's got nothing there now. It looks fantastic. And trying to educate patients to say, well, you know, your friend actually had some fat prolapse that was repositioned. She didn't have this fine crepey skin. Yes. So I agree with you, Jake. That's really one of the most difficult areas to treat. And I see many patients who have had multiple surgeries in that area. Yeah. And they'll come to me and say, look, these other surgeons were terrible. These other injectors were terrible. It still looks terrible. Usually the truth of it is that the other surgeons and injectors were fine. It's just that- It's just hard. It's difficult area. And that patient expectations are something that you've got to address right at the front yeah. end of that problem. Uh, and I, I think, think it's a very difficult problem. Dovetailing with that is, you know, the the tear trough, like, like you described. A lot of our clients think that after treatment, there should be no deformity. Yes. Whereas actually, you know, my child's got a tear trough. It's natural. It's, it's exactly anatomical. Right. It's exactly right. It's an anatomical thing. And, you know, my children as well. And often I give a lecture where I'll have a photograph of the orbits and the eyelids of my three kids. Yeah. And I'll, on those photographs, I'll do various objective measurements, like the distance between the eyebrow and the crease, the crease and the eyelashes, the lower lid 
and the cheekbone. And then I'll compare them to some of my older aesthetic patients. And it's interesting that some of these measurements don't change that much, but you can tell straight away which one is the youthful eye mm. and which one is the aged eye. Yeah. And the reasons for that are complex, but they're related to fundamentally skin quality is a big thing. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the panacea for a lot of these cosmetic treatments, if you've got good skin or thicker skin, or you come from an ethnic background that's got thicker skin or darker skin, you're already ahead of the game. Yeah. I mean, you only need to look at African-American or darker skin patients to see how well they age to a certain point compared to somebody who's fair-skinned in a difficult climate. Yeah. So skin is really fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I really sh probably should have done in our first episode on upper eyelid, but let's just sort of finish this off. Yes. People who get uh, atosis because of anti-wrinkle treatments, Yes. what, what is the... Um, uh, the, the eye drops that you know are yeah, sometimes help out. Yeah. prescribed. Can you just touch on how they work and what what they are? Sure. Just for people who don't quite understand that. Yeah. So what usually happens is some of the botulinum toxin diffuses to uh, the levator muscle, which is the main muscle that lifts the eyelid. There are two muscles that lift the eyelid: the levator muscle and the Muller's muscle. Mm -hmm. Most of it is done by the levator muscle. So. When you have a ptosis after a botulinum toxin injection, what you can use is an eye drop that stimulates the second muscle, the Muller's muscle. Yeah. And that's an eye drop called iopidine or it's an alpha adrenergic agonist. And what it does is it stimulates that Muller's muscle to contract. Yeah. So it gives a little bit of lift, mm -hmm. maybe a millimeter or two, depending on the effect of the patient. Now, sometimes the eye drops can be a little bit irritant, yes. but they're very useful to get the patient through that bad period yeah. of two to four weeks till the muscle starts to recover. Yeah. They're also very useful if something goes wrong and they've got an important social engagement. I mean, that's a difficult situation. And I've had patients that have rung me up or other surgeons that have rung me up for advice. Yeah. And even though we as clinicians may think this is not a big problem, it's going to wear off, it's going to get better, sometimes the patients are distraught at oh, this complication. So, yeah. yeah, and really, really unhappy. So if you've got a way of helping them and holding their hand while things get better, they're not going to be happy, but at least they're going to be a little bit appreciative that you are trying to help. The worst thing that you can do, I think, for all these complications is not listen to the patient yeah. and say, listen, you know, that's not a You'll problem. You'll be fine. Yeah, that's right. See you that, later. They certainly don't want the next treatment. That's right. <laughs> yeah. They really don't want to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had Dr. Kat Stone on here a few weeks ago and we were discussing, she's a doctor from New yeah. Zealand, um, talking about PRP. Yes. Have you seen, have you had any sort of uh, time to sort of uh, look at how that may be uh, used in terms of around the eye area for rejuvenation or that crepey skin? Have you seen any evidence that that might be something that's worthwhile looking into? I don't have any personal experience, but I have had some patients that uh, I've operated on in terms of doing an upper or lower lip blepharoplasty that have had PRP treatment of the face and the lower eyelids. Because intimating before, I often ask the patients what other treatments yeah. that they've had. And the patients that I've had, which is admitted, admittedly only a handful of patients, said they found it useful. Yeah. Okay. Now, I haven't 
got any personal experience with the technique. I note that it's relatively popular. Yeah. I think in terms of uh, neck injections as well as facial injections. Yeah. And I have had several patients that have had it in the eyelid. Yeah. There's different uh, combinations and people mix it obviously with various activating yeah. agents from speaking to my colleagues. Yeah. But I don't have any personal experience. Yeah, I think that sort of what I gathered from that particular discussion was that it works great in, in some people. Some people it works okay. Some people are just non-responders and they don't right. really understand why. Right. Um, so it's yeah again it's sort of like as we were discussing before some we don't it's hard to it's hard to predict how it's going to turn right. out but it might work really well on some people exactly and that's useful it would be really useful for a lot of these non-invasive treatments as we were discussing before yeah. if we had an algorithm or a nomogram where we could say you know what here's a pathway for you yeah, yeah that would be very useful for me as well in terms of you know the patients that I see that I've from doing surgery for many years yeah. there's a small subgroup of patients that i see that are younger that have a lower eyelid uh, bag or as they call it a hollow or a ring that do really well with non-invasive treatment yeah. and those patients are usually darker skinned yeah. or they might be men they do really well the other groups that i've found from many years of experience is Older patients that may have a dark circle or a hollow that are female in their 50s tend to do less well mm. with non-invasive treatments, especially with filler because the tissues doesn't have the turga to support the filler in the correct position. Yeah. So I see a lot of patients, a lot of patients that come to me for lower lip blepharoplasty for dark circles that are in their mid to late 50s, that patient group that have had multiple episodes of filler. Yeah. yeah. That they've sort of, it's been okay, but sometimes, like you said, Jake, before it's been a bit lumpy or it's been a bit blue or-, or In the morning it's swollen. Or it- That's classic. Or it, it retains fluid. <laughs> yeah. And what I do in those patients, one of the first things I do is I dissolve the filler yeah. in the lower eyelid with some hyaluronidase. Now, often when I do that and they come back to me the next week, they're not so happy. They said, well, you know, what it's did you now. do? You, you, this is really hollow. These bags were never there. And I said, look, you know, they were there and the way we're going to treat them is surgically. Yeah so that you don't have that fluid. Yeah. One of the other complications that I've seen that I think is underreported is the encapsulation of the so-called dissolvable fillers in the lower eyelid. Mm. Every year I have five to 10 patients that have had multiple episodes of swelling in the morning, not getting better. They've had multiple injections of hyaluronidase to dissolve the filler and they still have these hard lumps, little sausages of tissue. And when I've removed them surgically, and I always send them off for pathology, they're all hyaluronic acid gel. Right. There is a subset of the population that has lower eyelid filler that is encapsulated and difficult to dissolve. Very mm. much like uh, the old uh, silicon breast implant encapsulation. It's, right. no, it's very uncommon in terms that you know, I guess I have one patient every couple of months that I see with this problem and there's millions and millions of fillers injected. So I'm not saying that it's a common complication, but it's something to bear in mind if you have a patient that you think has a little bit of retained filler there and you've injected it several times with hyaluronidase and it still seems to be there. Yeah. 
It may, them to you. It, well, no, no. <laughs> well, it, it may still be there. Yeah. So we've got to get it out in some other way. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, seems like we're discovering things all the time that Dixon sort of just randomly these sort of. I think it's true because the yeah. popular the popularity of these uh, aesthetic interventions yeah. is really skyrocketed in the yeah. last. 10 years, and I think we're going to talk about that yeah. next week when we speak yeah. about fillers and safety. But, yeah. you know, the rate of filler use has become main, yeah. mainstream, right? So it's, an ex- so it's not these procedures, you know, people say, well, look, you know, there's all these problems occurring. It's not necessarily because, bad you know, injector. bad injector. And it's, there's just so many more so many more happening absolutely absolutely well thank you again for episode two You're of your little sub-series um, just a quick reminder how people can get in contact again often the website is a good uh, port of call that's doctoredservice.com T-S-I-R-B-A-S yep. and that's got lots of information and about the surgeries that we do and the clinic's located on the corner of York and Jameson Street in the Sydney CBD yeah, it's, a, it's a lovely setup you've got there Jake and I went and caught up with you initially there and had a bit oh, of a chat it's like a, like a museum <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> Thanks Fantastic. very much. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. For our latest news, upcoming episode information, and mini video clips of our guests, you can follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. We've also just started a YouTube channel called Inside Aesthetics, and we'll be uploading more content and longer videos in the future.